Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Wow. All right. We continue our series, The Upside Down Kingdom. Uh, I hope and I, and I know through feedback we've been enjoying this together as a church. Uh, some days, some Sundays it's confronting, some Sundays it's encouraging, some days it's the both. Um, uh, last week, Pastor Emma spoke on the, 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 the topic of salt and light that Jesus spoke um, in chapter 5, um, uh, from 15 down to 16. Um, it was longer than that. Um, and, and I just, I walked away from that sermon so challenged by some of the concepts that Pastor Emma really taught and led us through. And one of them in particular was the understanding that, you know, when, when salt becomes so cut and polluted and, and no longer exhibits the purity that it is required to be effective in its proper job, it's trampled underfoot. And I thought to myself, it's so interesting that the enemy wants to take what God has given to us as an inheritance to make a difference in a world, to bring his life into this world, that if we don't steward that well, if we don't protect it, if we're not intentional with it, if we allow things to begin to pollute it, what was once meant for life becomes useful for death. And that's the extremes of the cosmic battle that we find ourselves in between the, the heavenly realms and then the darkness of this world. And believe it or not, when we read scriptures like either you're for him or you're against him, uh, we have to inherit and we have to begin to, to allow it to resonate and ricochet within our heart that there is no gray areas when it comes to the kingdom of God. Either you're in the light and in the life or you're choosing to partner with darkness. And this is, this is great because as we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, as we continue to look at Jesus' teachings through here, which is just a powerful, and honestly, it is one of the most powerful moments in the Bible, you've got to, you've got to admit, he doesn't leave any space for gray. You know, we live in a world that wants us to go, well, you know, maybe it's gray. Maybe, maybe he meant this. Maybe, you know, we can, we can have arguments. We can play the game of semantics. There, there might be this nuance or that nuance. But at the end of the day, we all know He's very clear. The little nuances that we argue about doesn't change the heart of the message and it doesn't blur it at all. And so we're, we get to move on today to what is one of the most, I would think, you know, if I had a, a dime for every time this was misquoted, I'd be a diamond heir. And um, I was like, how many dimes do you need to make a million bucks? But I'm like, I don't even know what a dime is. Um, <laughs> you know, the amount of times I hear this just taken out of context or, or used to, I guess, achieve something we want as, as, a, as, a, you know, as a Christian uh, in a situation. And it's this simple one about the fulfillment of law. Now, this can lead to you to, to swing to one end of the spe uh, spectrum or to the other. Uh, but today, I really hope as we go through this together as a church, and as I get the privilege of leading and guiding you through what Jesus was saying, that it would cement in your heart not the legalism of our faith, but the beautiful grace of our faith. And what Jesus was really saying here is, is actually fundamental for us as all believers to know inside out. Like when we sing, Lord, we, just, we want you to change us from the inside out. He does that by us understanding his word inside out. Um, and so I know today this is going to be fun. I know we're going to take it slowly. Uh, we might not even get through it all today because I don't know if 31 minutes and 44 seconds, 43, 42 is good. Enough time for us to get it through and I don't want to butcher it, but we'll do our best to see how far we get. And then after this, we get to 
have communion together. And I honestly, I love the fact that we're talking about this today because we're talking about the fulfillment of the law and, and the, the new covenant in Christ. And there's nothing like communion for us to celebrate, to reflect and come together to acknowledge that that is the truth that sets us free. Jesus came and fulfilled the law, brought a new covenant, and our great hope is resurrection. And so let's have fun today. Uh, in your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 5 of Matthew. We're reading from 17 to 20. It says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Verse 19, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> that is the, the last verse there is some shade, if you didn't pick that up. That's just some, that's some classic old school Jesus shade where he gets to teach us by school and some people that were getting it wrong. It's awesome. All right. This is a controversial passage. It has been uh, for a long time as people try to, you know, come to terms with what Jesus is beginning to do here. Now, I can encourage you in, in this thought is that what Jesus is actually saying in these three verses, uh, four verses, sorry, is actually an introduction to what he wants to do and which is to teach uh, from verses 21 on to 48 after this. And we're going to go through that over the next few weeks. Um, but he's setting something up here and he's setting up the context in which he's going to teach. Uh, and it's really important because this setup actually has an eternal benefit for you if you allow this setup to play out in the daily concept of your life. Day in, day out, you remember this setup. Uh, th that statement of, of, you know, when I, when I read this, and, and I don't know how often you've read it, uh, but it really is giving us a clear indication of Jesus' attitude towards the Old Testament especially in, its, in the concept of legal provisions, you know, and, and, and the ethical teachings that Jesus is about to, to talk about. But he's given us his attitude. He's given us a glimpse of what he thinks. See, the controversy, and it's really important, uh, it, it centers on whether these words affirm the permanent validity of the details that are contained in the Old Testament, such as regulations, or whether they express more generally the God-given authority of the Old Testament without specifically or without specifying just how it applies to this new, this new situation which has been introduced with the coming of Jesus. It's a new situation. It's, this is abnormal right now. Uh, what Jesus is saying is in a moment in time, a very abnormal moment in time, it's a very peculiar moment in time, and this, this controversy actually centers around what happens when the Old Testament meets the New Testament. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, hey, right now, and we get to read it, this conversation is the Old Testament being told by the New Testament, being reflected upon by the New Covenant, the Messiah that has arrived. 
Today we're going to do what we would call an exegesis on just verses 17 and 18. I wish we could do the whole lot, but that's, they're the most important ones to us right now and where we're at. Uh, and we're going to see how this translates into our lives. How does it apply to the day-to-day where we live right now? How you go about your faith right now? How you perceive Jesus in your life right now? How convoluted the world has been in its own morals and ethics? And how as the church, we've got to make sure we're not allowing it to passively seep in to our fertile soils and begin to corrupt the fruit and which God says is so valuable, not just to us, but to the world in receiving salvation. And so we must remain diligent and vigilant and make sure that we test the soil for any pollutants or any toxicity so that we know what we're saying, what we're living is in accordance with the truth. So what we're, de- we're going to deal about here with, with verse 17 and 18 is really what is Christ in relation to the law? Who is Christ in relation to the law? And when is Christ in relation to the law? And, and why is Gomorrah? Um, <laughs> He begins by telling them, it's so bad because I get so distracted so easily. I reckon my teachers would be proud of me that I can last 40 minutes with only getting distracted like 10 times. He begins by telling them not for one moment to imagine that he had, that, sorry, he had come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, when we hear the word and when you read about it in the New Testament, the law and the prophets, what they're actually saying, what he's actually talking about is the Old Testament. Old Testament law followed by the book of the prophets. He's saying, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament or any part of it. See, the way that Jesus phrases this negative statement suggests that some had indeed been thinking the very thought which now he chooses to contradict. See, although his public ministry had just begun, already, I mean already, his contemporaries were deeply disturbed by his supposed attitude towards the Old Testament. And there's a reason for this. See, perhaps it's the Sabbath controversy that had flared up earlier because we know in the book of Mark, it puts like uh, the plucking of the corn and the healing of the man's withered hand before the events of even the appointment of the twelve. So even, and we're certain about this, at the very beginning of his ministry, people had been struck by his authority to the point that they now need to have the conversation about the authority of the Old Testament. That's no small thing. That's no small thing. Imagine someone turns up in so much authority right now, we need to ask them, where does the government belong in this? In comparison to your authority. Do we still need to listen to our government? Or are you now the boss because you got so much authority in your life? And if my value and my ability to control things was found in the old system, I'm going to be upset about you bringing a new system. Because what does that do to me? Where does that leave me? Where does that leave my livelihood? Where does that leave my family? Where does that leave my identity? And so this is what Jesus is about to deal with. We know that people are amazed because in the book of Mark, chapter 127, it says this, the people were also Amazed, I know. He thought it was going to be something really, really in depth. And they, they asked each other. I love that imagery. Like, wow, let's ask each other this. What is this? What is this? I love that. I use that all the time when someone does something really dumb or does something that's weird. What is this? Who is this? <laughs> Why is this? No, um, 
What is this? A new teaching and with authority? Think about what Matthew has written there. If this is a new teaching, but it's not just new, it's actually got authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. He even has control in the spiritual realms. This is what's going on. If I'm not helping you paint a picture right now of just like the most ultimate scene in a movie where Jesus, the protagonist, has just turned up and he's about to throw down, not just with the things of this earth, but what people know are a cosmic realm, a spiritual realm, and everyone's interested now. It's early on in his ministry. Everyone wants to know right now, oh, if you're the guy that we think you are, my life's going to be changed forever. And the Pharisees and the different peoples that hold committee uh, positions and the officers of the courts, they're all freaking out because there's truth to what people are saying. They're not ignorant to it. They're just afraid of it. So it's therefore natural that so many people start asking, what is the relationship between your authority and the authority of the law of Moses? See, uh, the scribes of the day, and I mean the guys that were in charge of the law, they didn't associate any of the authority with themselves. This is important. It's a distinction that's important. They would just simply explain what the law says. And the authority was found in Scripture, not in them. Now, they could manipulate it, granted, because you could just be like, hey, it's not me. It's what the law says. I know you're illiterate on this, but you just got to trust me. Give me everything. Like, like, all of a sudden, we begin to see that the authority that they're used to were teachers of the law. People who devoted themselves to the interpretation People who didn't claim themselves any authority apart from the authority they quoted. This is not so clear with Jesus. He's different. See, he comes along and Jesus speaks in his own authority. This is important. See, he says he, he uses his formula that no ancient prophet or modern scribe at his time ever used. And we might not think much of it, but it's actually quite divisive in a good sense. And he, he introduces some of his most important, most brilliant teachings with this simple saying, which is truly I say to you. All of a sudden, in the light of what I've been telling you, Every time you've read that, especially in Matthew, because Matthew reflects upon this a lot, he says, truly I say to you, not the scriptures, not the Old Testament, not the prophets, I'm telling you, in my authority. What authority is that? Truly I say, he's speaking in his own name with his own authority. This is no small thing again. This is fun now. Man, if you were so used to something, and let's be honest, we get so used to the system, don't we? COVID's proven it. That when something comes and disrupts our system, disrupts our routine, we all figure out, like, we don't know what to do with ourselves for a while. Now, everything recalibrates, and I get that. And what I love about this is that it shows us how human we are and how human everyone is in these stories and how we don't like a disruption to the system. We take a disruption. Let's, let's all just be honest with ourselves. When something disrupts your system, what's your first, your first decision? It's to figure out what you can do 
to get it back to the, 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 the old system. Isn't that not right? What can I do to preserve what was? That's just a basic human thing. COVID came. What did churches do? How can we do everything the same just online? I loved watching us all try to figure that out until the light bulb comes on and goes, maybe God doesn't want us to do it the same way anymore. Maybe he wants us to have a bit of a perspective shift. Maybe we need to begin to realize that we are not stuck having to do four songs and a sermon, a high five and get through the week. Maybe there's more to Jesus than a social club. Maybe the disruption COVID brought conflicted with our own selfish desires to the point we try to spiritualify it so that at some point we can justify it. But Jesus is saying, what? what? Your social group is in your relationship with me. Your social group isn't your source of authority. Your influence doesn't come because everyone says you're great. It comes from me. I'm the source. I'm the well that runs deep. I'm the river that never runs dry. This is who I am to you. COVID has been frustrating. Seasons like this suck. Governments get it wrong. All that type of stuff. I've told you last or the week before last. You may, I don't even know what to do half the time with that stuff anymore. What I do know is that the system is broken. I don't think it's going to get repaired the way we want it to. But that's okay because we don't serve the system. We serve the living God. We don't have to be afraid. Jesus speaks with his own authority. What was this authority of his? What, what was he setting himself up for? Was it an authority over, against the sacred law, the word of God? So, to some of them, by their attitude, this is what it seemed to be. So they have that question, either spoken or unspoken, which Jesus, in this very verses that we read, answers unequivocally. He says, think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. He hits it head on. He doesn't, he doesn't dance around it. He doesn't walk on eggshells. He's straight in there. Don't you love that? Just in the thick of things. Just go straight in. No, I didn't come to abolish that. Don't you put that stuff on me. The funny thing is people are still asking the same question today, just in different ways. The relationship between Jesus and the law, the New Testament, the Old Testament. Can I encourage you, believer? Can I encourage you, avant lifer? That if Jesus grasped the nettle and declared himself plainly on the issue, we should not be shy to do the same thing. We shouldn't have to feel the need to justify the very accomplishments, the very heart, and the very mission of our Lord and Savior. We don't have to water it down to appease the old system. We don't have to water it down to appease the broken system of this world. What we need to do is know what we're talking about and know it from the inside out so that our faith is steadfast, so our words are intentional, so we carry the authority. No child carries the authority of their father if they don't learn the language their father is speaking. They won't know how to re-communicate it. They won't have the heart. They won't have the confidence. They won't know their value in those words, their own value. See, when you speak to someone about the goodness of God, every time you mention it, it should strengthen your own value in those words so that you wouldn't be afraid but be encouraged, so you wouldn't be discouraged by the results of someone listening to you. That's why Jesus says, just shake it off, move along. 
Why? Because every time you say those words, you should be encouraged even if the other person doesn't receive them. Your soul should come alive with the privilege of sharing the goodness, the mission, and the confrontation of Christ. I love that. He had come. That whole concept, I have come. He's on mission. Are you on mission this morning? Has he, has, has he presented to you your mission and are you staying on mission? Are you on target right now? Have you set your mind and foot towards where he's asked you to go no matter how uncomfortable it is, how conflicting it is, how challenging it is? Are you on mission? Because right in this moment, Jesus doesn't hesitate. He just makes it very clear. I am on mission and it's neither to abolish the law and the prophets, setting them aside, nor is it to endorse them as dead and some form of literacy, some form of academia. He says, I've come to fulfill them. Oh man, there's power in the word of fulfillment. I have come to fulfill them. See, we get this, this word fulfill from, from a Greek word that literally means to fill. I know, wow. See, he indicates that he's not, he's not there to, to repeal the former, but he's drawing it out. And he's filling it up. How cool is that? That he is drawing it out. So in in order for us and in order for you to grasp what I'm talking about right now and the far-reaching implications of this whole but very simple statement of I've come to fulfill them, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, we need to reflect on the fact that there is three different types of teachings in particularly that is found in the Old Testament. And they all, are, you know, in relation to Christ, they differ. But what I love is the word Jesus used, fulfillment, covers them all. Though his relation to them is different, he covers them all. And so let's look at these relations, uh, of these different relations of teachings that we find in the Old Testament to Christ and then we're going to talk about how we apply that to our modern day sort of, you know, translation. How do we put them into work right now here in the 21st century? So the first one is that the Old Testament contains doctrinal teaching, Torah, which would, you know, usually be translated to law, but, but actually means revealed instruction. So the Old Testament does indeed instruct us about God. It instructs us about man. It instructs us about salvation and etc. Actually, all the great biblical doctrines are also found in the Old Testament. But yet it's only a partial revelation. See, Jesus fulfilled it all in the sense of bringing it to completion by his person. It's really interesting, if you're taking notes, by his teaching and by his work. See, Bishop Ryle summed it up like this. He said, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. Isn't that a great image for us to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? So when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law, what he's saying is what was the Old Testament is the bud, but the New Testament is the full flowering. Is that beautiful? Second, the Old Testament contains predictive prophecy. These are the fun ones. We love reading these, right? Sometimes I hear people like, God's given me this word. I'd be like, wrong, okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and it's usually a predictive prophecy about the Messiah, but they've applied it to themselves. I'm like, you're not the Messiah, but anyway. 
Everyone's like, have I done that? <laughs> ah, we've all done it, but God's still talking to us, and that's the best part. <laughs> Most of the predictive prophecies look forward to the days of the Messiah. It either foretells him in word or foreshadows him in type. Yet it's anticipation only. These predictive prophecies is anticipation only. So Jesus fulfilled it all in the sense that what was predicted came to pass in and through him. So we've learned, right, that, that the doctrines of the Old Testament in the Torah instructions revealed is like the gospel in bud. New Testament is gospel revealed, which happens through the coming of the Messiah. We hear that there's predictive prophecies within the Old Testament which are fulfilled in the coming of Christ in and through him. See, the first statement of his public ministry we find in Mark 1, 14 to 15, Jesus says that the, the, the time um, is fulfilled. He's talking to John. It says now after John, sorry, he wasn't talking to John. It's after he gets baptized. It's after he's, in, he's been in the, the wilderness. He's come out now. He starts his ministry and says now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. I love that because all of a sudden now you know. It's like a different language. You know now what Jesus is saying is that all the, the, all the laws and the prophecies, the predictive prophecies of the Old Testament have been fulfilled. How? How have they been fulfilled? In Him, in His ministry starting. Now, those words are so much more powerful that you understand the context, that He's arrived, that He's preaching the gospel, and He says every word that has predicted the coming Messiah, the hope of the world, the darling of heaven is here. My ministry has begun. My march to the cross is upon us. So his very words back in Mark 5, Matthew 5, verse 17, I have come, time is fulfilled, implies the same truth. Again and again he claimed that the scriptures bore witness to him. Matthew emphasizes this more than any other evangelist as he repeats the formula. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. See, the climax is the death of Christ on the cross. And this is important because this signifies that the whole ceremonial system of the Old Testament, both, both priesthood and sacrifice, found its perfect fulfillment. Think about this right now. This is why so much of the Old Testament is no longer practiced because it's ceremonial law, which Christ fulfilled on the cross. The fulfillment is full. It's done. We no longer have to do those things anymore. He has fulfilled it. He has done it for us. He is the great one and only sacrifice that could have done that for us. So these ceremonies cease and they have ceased for us as believers. This is why Calvin so rightly comments. And I know for Pentecostals, we're like, oh, you're saying Calvin. Look, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I love what he says. It was only the use of them that was abolished. The use 
of ceremonial laws that was abolished, for their meaning was more fully confirmed in Christ. Think about that. If that is not an enlightening statement for you right now, let me repeat it. When it comes to the ceremonial systems of the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Christ and no longer are operating in our lives in the ceremonial sense, Calvin says this, it was only the use of them that was abolished, for their meaning was far more fully confirmed in Christ. This applies to so much of the Old Testament in our life. See, if these ceremony, uh, ceremonial systems, these practices of priesthood and sacrifice are fulfilled, the best imagery I can give you is this. They were but a shadow that was to come, the substance of which belongs to God, which was brought to us by Christ. Yeah. But a shadow of the true substance of Christ. Think about that. It is a foreshadow of Christ, the substance of Christ. Number three. So we've talked about doctrinal truth. I know I'm shooting through it quick. We've talked about predictive prophecy in the Old Testament. The last thing I want to talk about in relation to different relations Christ had with the different things happening in the Old Testament is the ethical precepts or the moral law of God. This is really important to us because sometimes the moral law of God gets confused with the ceremonial systems of the Old Testament. Right, And so that's why you've always heard, well, why in Leviticus it says this? Well, great, because Leviticus was a lot to do with the ceremony of, of, of the Old Testament, not just the moral law. But a lot of the moral law, if not all of it, still presides now, still exists now. See, this is the area that is often misunderstood. This is the area even more often disobeyed. Jesus fulfills, and this you got to love this part. I, honestly, this part when I was studying this, I was like, I love it. Just turns out, I love it. Just love it. I love what God does in and through Jesus in this moment because what we're about to learn is beautiful because Jesus fulfilled the ethical precepts simply by obeying them. <laughs> <You're>, oh. <laughs> Pastor, man, I was really interested, but to be honest, that was just like... See, he was born under law and was determined to fulfill it through righteousness. He says this to John the Baptist. See, in fact, Jesus has nothing to add to the commandments of God found in the Old Testament, except this, that he keeps them. He keeps them. How simple is that? His fulfillment of the moral law of God found in the Old Testament is through his obedience to them. So when he says, I have come to fulfill them, he's fulfilling what? He's allowing us to understand that the Old Testament is still connected to the New Testament, that he's fulfilled the predictive prophecies and therefore the ceremonies will come to an end. But just as importantly, the moral teachings of God, he will not add to them, but fulfill them in his character, his righteous character, which on the cross and through his resurrection is bestowed upon us as a free gift. As grace begins to resonate in us, we too should begin to operate in this last fulfillment of righteousness. This is why you can't hide behind grace 
and still live a life that is deliberately disobeying God. Because you're not hiding behind grace, you're rejecting it with that behaviour. Because to reject the fulfilment of Christ in your life and to receive the righteousness is to inherit grace. To live the life of a slave but claim that you're free is just a sad illusion that you convince yourself. That doesn't, oh man, I love this stuff. See, he does more than just obey them himself. He begins to explain what obedience will involve for his disciples, you and me. He rejects the superficial interpretation of law given by the scribes. He himself supplies the true interpretation. (laughs) Come on, Jesus. See, his purpose is not to change the law, still less to annul it. This is what his purpose is, to reveal the full depth of meaning that was intended or it was intended to hold, to reveal the full depth of meaning that the law was intended to hold. So then he fulfills it by declaring the radical demands of righteousness of God. He doesn't remove the moral law of God. He, what does he do? He fulfills it by declaring it, by living it out, by telling us we got to do the same. We've got to do the same. And, and over the coming weeks, we've got our Mission Sundays coming up, which will be great. And we're going to be going through different mission stuff as well as keeping on our study through this chapter of Matthew. But he goes on from this. And I told you at the start, this was an introduction to what he really wants us to... This was him beginning to say, I, this is a different interpretation, what I'm about to tell you. You scribes, they're very legalistic. And they're very selfish and they're very greedy and they're very deceitful. They're pretty much like humanity. But I'm going to interpret it through what I know is the truth. Because I only say what I hear the Father say. And I only do what the Father tells me to do. So we know the interpretation is pure. And then he goes on to begin to talk about murder. He talks about adultery. He talks about divorce. He talks about oaths. He talks about an eye for an eye. This is what... Now, all of a sudden, when you read those things in the book of Matthew, when you read those teachings of Christ, it's through the lens of him already saying, I have fulfilled the law. So what is the daily application for us? It's simply this. How do you make decisions? How do you go about making decisions in your life? Because... If every time I needed to make a decision, I put it through the lens of the fulfillment of law and prophecy by Jesus, I have no option but to find myself elevated to a, 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 a perspective of righteousness and grace. Righteousness and grace. They're very important because righteousness helps guide how we respond to ourselves and grace really helps us how do we respond to others. How do we make decisions? You know, in every generation of, of a Christian era, there has been those who could, could not accommodate themselves to Christ's attitude towards the law. They didn't like it. But I don't mean from a legalistic point of view. They try to sever the morality of God and all the different relationships in the Old Testament that Jesus came to fulfill. They try to sever it so that they can manipulate Christ's love. In the second century, we find the famous heretic, Marcion. You're like, ooh, come on, Marcion. 
who wrote the New Testament. He rewrites it. He rewrites the whole New Testament by eliminating its reference to the Old Testament. If that's not heretic behaviour, I'm not sure what is. Naturally, he erases this scripture verse. This passage doesn't, doesn't make his cut. Some of his followers went even further. They didn't just cut it. They deliberately exchanged verbs. So the sentence read this. I have not come to fulfill the law of the prophets, but to abolish them. You see what they did there? I have not come to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to abolish them. I read that and I'm like, wow, that's really messed up. Like after what we know now, what after what I've taught you, isn't that really messed up? Doesn't that really like fundamentally change everything Jesus came for? Doesn't that all of a sudden do one very important thing? What does it do? It removes Christ's claim to being the Messiah. And if we do that, what do we have? What are we doing if we do that? Oh, how crazy are these people that they come and rewrite the New Testament and they would get rid of stuff from the Old Testament and they would switch verbs in, in passages to suit. How crazy are these people? How evil are these people that they would mislead others? They would, they would pollute the redemption message of Christ. How, how bad and evil are these people until so you realise that's us? Like how many times have you not followed what was right that the Bible talked about in the Old Testament and claimed grace for your bad, evil disobedience? Oh, I would never rewrite the New Testament. You just did. You just did. Well, I would never, I would never switch the word fulfill with the word abolish. But you do when you live your life according to your flesh, to your earthly desires, where somehow God said one thing today, but another thing the next day, and another thing the next day. And when we start looking at the pattern of behaviours of your life, we realise God's not saying any of that stuff to you. It's what you're saying to God, and it's what you're lying yourself with, and it's what you're telling everyone else is happening. And you think we're all blind, or you think God can't see, but after a while, it all comes crashing down, the whitewash crumbles. Now, I love the grace of God because at no moment in that process can you not come back to Him. The fact that you can come back to Him in grace doesn't make your behavior okay. The fact that you can return to Him as a prodigal doesn't make your decisions okay. Young people in particularly, I'm talking to you right now. We've grown up in a world that says that your feelings are more important than the principles that we should live by. That your emotions are what you should appease, not the better determination of God's commands in your life. See, their counterparts, the same people that exist like this heretic today, They seem to be those who have embraced the so-called new morality. You know what I'm talking about. They declare that the very category of law is abolished for the Christian through Christ. That 
the Old Testament and the commands and the morality of God found in that are no longer binding for Christians except for the law of love. The law of love. Come on, you felt it before, hey, believer? Love is everything. As long as you love, as long as your love is pure, you can marry that fridge. As long as you love that fridge, it's fine because it's the law of love. It, it, like, honestly, it plays out every time. Well, Jesus came to love and Jesus loved and I can do all things that I feel like I desire because He loves me and if He really loves me, He accepts me for who I am and how I'm created and what desires I want to fulfil and therefore love becomes your Lord. And so the question I ask you, because this is the same question that they asked, they asked Christ when His authority challenged the way they perceived the Old Testament in their system. Can I ask you this? Are the teachings of Christ or the love that He exhibits more important? Are His teachings more important? Do they carry more authority? Or is the fact that He loves us carry more authority? And what I love is that Jesus answers that question and He did 2,000 years ago when He says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come so that they may be fulfilled in and through me. I have come not that you would just have to follow my teachings and never feel my love. And I have come so that you didn't just feel love and never follow my teachings. I've come that you would be loved into my teachings. That you would be loved into my principles, that you'd be loved into my transformation, that who you are now that I love is not who you're going to be if you pursue me with your whole heart because I love who you are, but I love you more to see you changed. That's what he's saying. Hey, I've come so that you can make right decisions. I could spend a good 10 minutes getting into the petty decisions that we have to make sometimes and the way we justify our sin in those decisions. I was talking to the interns the other day. If you've spent enough time with me, you know I get like frustrated real easy. Like it's, it's, there's like a superficial frustration that I get real easy, but then there's a deep frustration. Like that runs deep. It's like a tectonic plate. But even in all my frustrations, especially against Christian cyclists, especially against Langley. All these super, superficial frustrations, all these things that annoy me. You know, I said to them, I've learned to make my decision in the principle first and to feel all my emotions later. I do not allow my emotions to determine or affect my decision. That is the realm of God and God alone. 
That doesn't mean He wants us to be robots. doesn't mean He wants us to be like, okay, the law says this, and therefore we... No, He wants us to be in relationship with Him, but He wants us to know that when He says you should do this, or you should go there, or you should give this, or you should say that, or you should share this, or you should give this up, or you should be generous here, or you should be sacrificial here, or you should invest here, or you should surrender here. When He starts saying all that stuff, we're not determining it through how we feel about what He's asking us. We're determining about the fulfilment that we know we will receive in the obedience to His leading and His guiding. It doesn't mean once you make that decision, you don't feel the emotions. We, we flew across the other side of the world. We did it with the excitement in obedience, but we still felt lost. We still grieved the separation. We still hated the fact we were so far away. We were still fearful of what was to come if we'd made the right decision. But at the end of the day, all of that came after the commitment to God. You want great faith, have great decision-making skills and the principles that He has fulfilled in you. And then allow your emotions to go through those lens. Why? Because when your emotion goes through the lens of obedience, it's submissive. But when your emotions are the lens, it is destructive to your obedience. That's why when Jesus says in the garden, and I love it, I absolutely love this imagery. He has set His foot. He declares it at the start of His ministry, I have come. The time is fulfilled. What He's saying is the cross is inevitable. But the the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He's praying, He's already made His decision. He's already committed His heart to orders. He's already obedient to the Father. He still prays in that state of realisation of what He's about to go through. Not Not my will, but your will be done. That tells us God in Christ felt emotions. But it also tells us that He was obedient unto the cross. And so this morning as we go back into worship, I want to leave you with this image. I'll summarize it. It's found in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Uh, if you haven't read it, can I encourage you? It's a very small book. You can read it within like three hours. It's good. Everyone's now eligible to read that. Three hours is a small commitment. But in the book, he has this imagery of a man that has traveled from hell into the, the, the initial plains of heaven, like the, the fields of heaven. And the journey is described. It looks like he's going up these massive cliff faces and there's buses. It's a really crazy thought, actually. And it lands on the fields of heaven. And these people disembark from the bus. They've just come from hell and they've just landed in heaven. And they're carrying all their baggage that put them in hell in the first place. And they begin to interact with people from their past life on earth that had made it into heaven. And, and it's, the imagery is beautiful, but this one particular guy, the protagonist, he is, he's, and he's, he's got a great attitude towards heaven. And he meets the guy that's come to, to mentor him. And he has discussions with this guy. And he's challenged by the fact, he's like, how come you guys that have made it into heaven can travel all the way back here to the outer fields, the outer realms of heaven to meet with us and to tell us that we need to change our ways to get into the goodness and the grace of God. We need to decide, Christ, how come you can do that here? Why don't you just come all the way to hell to tell us? Why don't you come all the way to hell to tell us? Why do you stop here in heaven? That just seems like your message is broken. 
And his response and what C.S. Lewis does here, I think is profound. The mentor of this protagonist points to this crack in the dirt, almost microscopic. And he says, can you see that? And the guy's like, yeah, I can see it. It's the tiniest crack in the ground. He said, you traveled through that to get to heaven. He says, because of what Christ has done in our life, we can't get any smaller to fit in the crack, to go where you've come from. Because of what Christ has done to us, how big He's made us, how strong He's made us, we don't have the ability to make ourselves smaller because of Christ. We can't fit in the crack. But there's one who can. And there's one who did. Because it takes great power to make yourself so insignificant that you could step down from your, your beautiful your rightful place on the throne of heaven. You'd say, you, only you have the power, Jesus, to make yourself so small that you would descend into the cracks and the insignificant nature of hell that we so want to bond ourselves to so that you would set us free. Only Jesus can do that. And so when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, when I've come to be crucified, I've made myself so small and insignificant that I could fit into the crack I don't belong, where I don't want you to go. This morning as we worship, let's remember, let's remind ourselves of that great sacrifice, that great impossibility that the darling of heaven would take our place, the great reward that we have so that we could make great decisions that would make people fall in love with the great Savior. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Or check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.